What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts. Hi, Katie. Hi there, Brian. We should warn listeners that our podcast today should probably get an R rating. If you have young children in the room, you may want to have them listen to something else. (laughs) Our guest today is an expert on relationships and sex. In fact, he's something of a living legend uh, on those topics for over 25 years. Dan Savage has dished out sex advice, love advice in his syndicated Savage Love column. He's also written several books about his own family and relationships. Dan's writing, and well, Dan himself actually, is by turns withering, empathetic, hilarious, brutally honest, a little dirty, and always, always fearless. And for Dan, the personal is definitely political. He often writes about abortion laws, contraception, gay rights, HIV and AIDS, and he's no stranger to taking on politicians as well, most notably Rick Santorum, and you're going to have to Google that one because I really am not going to describe it. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation from Dan's childhood to how he became a columnist, his love affair with Ann Landers, which is fascinating, his It Gets Better campaign, how he feels about Donald Trump, and uh, by the way, not very kindly. Not and a big all fan. Sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of things in between. So here's our conversation with Dan Savage. With all due respect to the Dos Equis man, I think you're the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> you have done so many things just reading about you. I think, what hasn't Dan Savage done? You've written books. You've hosted podcasts. You've led advocacy campaigns. We're going to get into all that in a moment. But first, we want to talk about your long-running advice column called Savage Love. You've been doing it for 25 years. When your column first came out in 1991, It was a very new phenomenon, wasn't it? A gay man giving frank sexual and relationship advice to mostly straight people? Yeah. At first, the idea, you know, the concept originally was it was just going to be a joke and I was going to do it for six months or or a year. And I was going to treat straight people uh, and straight sex with the same contempt and revulsion that heterosexual straight lady advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with. You know, Ann Landers, who I loved uh, back in the day, uh, the Playboy Advisor, these people would occasionally take a gay question and, you know, hold it with tongs and wrinkle their noses, but then give a little advice. Uh, And I thought I should do that to straight people and see how they liked it. And it turned out that they really liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Why? They liked, like, how gross is straight sex? Is that the kind of vibe it was? The first year of it was, I can't believe you would do such a disgusting thing. Your poor mother must be heartbroken. Here's some advice. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. And it took off. And I think it was because, you know, straight people had never been treated this way before. And it was you know, humorous if you were straight to be treated as if you were powerless, which you aren't. Um, And the advice was, I guess, good because the letters started just pouring in and this kind of joke advice column under my feet within the first 12 months became an actual advice column. I'm sure the only person who could turn you away from being gay was Ann Landers. Now, what up with that, Dan? How did you become obsessed with, of all people, Ann Landers instead of, by the way, her sister, Abby? I grew up in a newspaper house. Uh, My grandfather worked for the Chicago uh, Daily News and Chicago Star, both now closed, unfortunately. And so we got all the papers uh, when I was a kid, uh, living in my grandparents' uh, house with my family, um, multi-gen household. And so really the comics and the advice columns were the entry point for young, you know, for the kids who looked at the newspapers that were spread out all over the dining room table. Uh, and so I just started reading Ann Landers. And we were liberals and Dems, so we got the Sun-Times uh, after a while, stopped getting the Tribune, which is where Abby was. So I grew up reading Ann, who, you know, grew and learned over the years uh, and, you know, changed her position on uh, gay people and our right to exist and why we exist. But what I was reading uh, in Ann when I was 
you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 wasn't very positive. But that's, you know, she was of her generation and we can't judge her through the light of right this minute. We have to look at her in the context of then. And she was compassionate in ways that other uh, folks uh, in the culture at that point weren't. In fact, you bought her desk at an auction. Is that right? <laughs> I did. Uh, I got her daughter, Margot Howard's her daughter, uh, one of the original Dear Prudences at Slate. Uh, so she wrote an advice column for many years. And I called her when I heard about the auction of uh, Ann Lander's effects and got her permission because I didn't want it to be spun uh, in the media as if I was being somehow disrespectful to the memory of Ann Lander's or doing something that might upset uh, her daughter. Uh, and got Margot's permission, and Margot and I are now friends, and we chat all the time. And so I write my very dirty, very different sex advice column at the same desk where Ann Landers wrote her column for 45 years. We want to give our listeners a feel for your column and your podcast. So let's go over some of the signature Savage Love acronyms and catchphrases. <laughs> Rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are your listeners ready? I, I don't know. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> What's the campsite rule? Uh, the campsite rule is that uh, if there's a large age difference or experience gap between two people who are uh, hooking up or or friends with benefits or even dating, that it is on the onus is on the older or more experienced partner to leave the younger or less experienced partner in better shape than you found them, which is the, the rule for when you camp. You should always leave your campsite in better shape than you found it. And we should all – and it, it should apply generally. Like you should always leave – people that you've dated or, or been with, hopefully in better shape than you found them. But in this context, you know, the older, younger, it means, uh, you know, no sexually transmitted infections, no unplanned pregnancies, no needless uh, pain, uh, no promises that you know you can't fulfill, uh, and that you help this person learn and grow uh, while they're with you, and you don't leave them in worse shape than you found them, the campsite rule. What about GGG? Good giving and game. That's what we should all be for our sex partners. Um, good in bed. You know, you want to acquire some skills. A human being is a lot more complicated than a violin, and no one can play the violin the first time they pick it up. You got to practice. Uh, giving, which is sometimes you give pleasure uh, in your indulgent without an expectation of an immediate return, that everything doesn't have to be instantly and equally uh, reciprocity in the moment, that sometimes you give. It doesn't have to be good for everybody. Right. Well, hopefully it's not, you don't want it to be traumatic for anybody or, or unpleasant for anybody, but sometimes you are giving um, and not getting at that moment, and that's okay. And game means sort of up for anything within reason. Uh, that sex should be an adventure that you two are on together. Um, and, you know, it's like good improv. You never say no in improv. <laughs> and you want to, you know, be the person for your partner, particularly if it's a sexually exclusive relationship. Be the person who makes things happen for your partner. Be the person they come to uh, and, and who's going to welcome their fantasies or interests or kinks and, and celebrate them and, and make that stuff happen. Dot, 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 within reason. You know, being GGG, good giving and game, doesn't mean you do anything that your partner asks or wants. And nobody gets everything they want uh, out of a relationship. Um, and sometimes you pay. It's another thing that from the column, the price of admission is kind of grows out of GGG. And the price of admission is, you know, the price you pay to be with somebody. You know, if you're desperately into sex act X and that's not something that your partner will ever do, then the price of admission that you pay to be with that person is you never get to do that. And what about C posts? <laughs> that stands for cheating piece of shit. Uh, and do you have a lot of people call you, Dan, or write to you, and and they are writing about their CPOS? Mostly, I get letters when people use the acronym in a letter to me. They're using it to describe themselves. Really? Uh, they, you know, they say that I feel terrible. I'm a CPOS. I'm a cheating piece of shit. Uh, and talking about non-monogamy is not to tear down people who value monogamy, who want monogamy, who want a monogamous commitment. Creating a universe where people who don't want monogamy and can't honor a monogamous commitment can go make commitments to people who also don't want monogamy and don't want monogamous commitments, that makes – People who end up in monogamous relationships, it makes those monogamous relationships safer and stronger. Just like not having gay men marry straight women makes marriage stronger. Not having people who can't do monogamy making commitments to people who demand monogamy makes those monogamous commitments that are ultimately made stronger if the non-monogamous and monogamous sort themselves. You're an early podcast adopter, and I'm curious, what does the podcast offer you that the column doesn't? Uh, you can really get into the nuance in a podcast. A column's 12, 1,300 words, um, and you really have to boil everything down to the nut. And 
on a podcast, you can you can digress, and I can get people on the phone, and instead of it just being, here's the letter, here's my response, we can have a conversation. I can bring in guest experts and, and interview them at great length about an issue or a problem. Um, it just allows for more. Although now, because my podcast has been around for so long, I mean, I was podcasting so early, people are like, oh my God, you were an early adopter of this new format. You must be a you know, a genius and you had such foresight. And it's like, no, 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 no. There were, I call them the tech savvy at risk youth. There were people that I worked with who were young and tech savvy who were like, you, you we're going to start doing this podcast, whether you like it or not. And they kind of forced me to do it. <laughs> I was very resistant. What are most of the calls about? Situational ethics. You know, 26 years ago when I started writing Savage Love, half the questions were, you know, what's a butt plug or Ooh. where's the swingers club <laughs> in my area? Two words and now, I never thought I'd hear on this podcast. <laughs> butt plug. Well, Thank Katie, you. right up. <laughs> and now, and this may be helpful to you, Katie. Now, butt plug has a wiki page, so you don't have to write in to me to ask what it is after you overheard someone talking about one on a bus. Good to know. Good to know, um, Dan. And swingers clubs all have their own websites, so you don't need sort of specialized magazines with you know referrals to PO boxes to find a swing club in Dallas. Just Google Dallas and swingers clubs, and they pop right up. So all the questions I get now at the podcast and the column are: I did this, they did that. I'm mad about this, they're mad about that. Who's right? Who's wrong? And you have to kind of weigh in on these situational ethics, the, the situational ethics of this problem and this conflict. And it's a lot harder now to, to write a, an advice column than it used to be because you don't get – I used to call them definitions and referrals. I don't get define this, what is this, and I don't get referral questions anymore because the internet does that. All I get are this is what happened. We need a ruling from Solomon about <laughs> how we're going to cut this baby in half or whether we should. When, when did you realize you were good at giving people advice? I mean, you were a little bit of, a, of an outcast in, in high school. You were the only out gay person in your class, as I understand it. And so did you, did you sort of always feel a little bit separated from the well, pack? It's just like the, the way women, I think, uh, think more about gender because it impacts them more severely, you, you know, gender-based discrimination. And, and people of color think more about race. I think when you're gay, you think more about sex because it's what— makes you different. It sets you apart and complicates your life. Uh, and you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. And I realized uh, early in life, and I was rare for gay men of my generation. I'm 52 years old. It was rare for uh, kids to be coming out in high school uh, who are my age, but I did come out in high school and instantly became kind of the go-to guy for my straight friends who had relationship problems or sex questions. Um, because I think they just intuited that I was thinking more about these things than they were, or uh, because I had to think more about these things. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of gay people. We talked to a lot of gay men, lesbians, uh, even very young uh, and recently out or out in college, and they'll tell you that they're the person that their friends confide in about their sex and relationship problems. I think because, you know, they figure you gave yourself permission not to be gay, but to be out and maybe you'll give them permission to be whoever they actually are and help them let go of normal, which plagues a lot of people. You know, I was I was struck that you came of age as a gay guy in a conservative Catholic household and during the height or the depths of the AIDS epidemic. So I'm just curious how those two experiences shaped the sort of journalist and columnist you later became. Well, I got a Catholic education, uh, educated by Jesuits. And you know, my parents were evangelical Catholics uh, before that was uh, a hip thing to be, which it seems to be now. Um, and my mother would joke later, you know, after she came around on the gay thing, which she did pretty quickly after I came out, that the values that they had imparted to us, part of sort of their interpretation of the Catholic tradition, was one of the reasons that I was out to them. And so it kind of blew back and bit them on the ass <laughs> because they were very much about, you know, the importance of being honest and loving the people in your life and being truthful uh, and not being deceitful. And yet I felt myself, you know, when I was young and Catholic and I, I thought about being a priest. I thought about I could never come out. It would kill my parents. Um, I thought about, I, I, you know, I'll need to find a woman that I can lie to for 50 years and marry her. And then that was just so in conflict with what I had been taught about right and wrong uh, in Sunday school, at my Catholic grade school, at my Catholic high school, to, to lie to someone all their life like that, to mislead someone. And it just forced me to to be out. It just felt like it grew out of my sort of education, uh, even though my faith didn't survive 
my coming out. And I actually came out before the AIDS epidemic. I came out in 80, 81, and then uh, into that buzzsaw uh, and watched uh, a lot of my friends die in their mid-20s and early 30s. And that was really rough. And there was, you know, there were moments there at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic where I watched people that I knew to be gay uh, go back in the closet um, or, or renounce their homosexuality and who were already infected and then died anyway. Uh, and it, it, you know, the AIDS epidemic forced us to start telling the truth. Um, people were outed because they, you know, suddenly had Carposi's sarcoma. Um, and it also forced us to tell the truth about uh, about how we were having sex. You know, it used to be, you know, before HIV AIDS, there was the sex that everybody agreed that everybody ought to be having, even though everybody kind of knew that everybody wasn't having necessarily that kind of sex. And what mm-hmm. AIDS forced was a conversation about the sex people were actually having, not the sex that we all agreed people ought to have, which was the kind of sex that most advice columnists specialized in, like what you ought to be doing. And what was different about Savage Love when I started, it really did grow out of my experience in the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, the crisis, the worst years of it, was let's talk about what we're actually doing because that's where the risk comes in. As as I'm listening to you, Dan, I, I'm thinking how ironic it is that in some ways the AIDS epidemic accelerated the acceptance and tolerance, in it, certainly in some quarters, of gay people in general. Absolutely it did. You know, before— the AIDS epidemic, we were just, you know, gay people started coming out en masse after the Stonewall riots in 1969. And there was this kind of, you know, bacchanalish, uh, youthful, exuberant adolescence uh, of the movement where people were just so thrilled to be out and open and able to live openly and love openly. And it was just kind of a party. And that was the, you know, the hedonism that people like Jerry Falwell pointed to, Um and condemned. And then the AIDS epidemic slammed into the community and you suddenly saw that, you know, we suffered and died and we suffered and died and loved and took care of each other at a time when even our own families refused to take care of us. Plus um, the activism, I think, that that grew out of the AIDS epidemic, I think, made a lot more people aware and exposed to the fact that there were a lot of gay people in the world, right? And it 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 put put them front and center in some ways, obviously under terrible circumstances, but gave them much greater attention. And if people don't have awareness, obviously, it's hard for them to go from awareness to acceptance, right? Right. It was a terrible circumstance in some ways, to, to borrow a phrase, also our finest hour. Because we didn't collapse, you know— People forget what was being said then. I remember it all very distinctly. You know, you had William F. Buckley saying that gay men should be tattooed on the arm and the buttocks. Uh, You had people talking about mass quarantining of openly gay people on islands. Um, Pat Buchanan floated that in columns that ran in the Washington Post. It was a perilous moment, and we did feel like everything that – what little visibility and little security that we enjoyed was going to be – ripped away from us. And instead of, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, a few people I knew who went back into the closet. That's not the reaction that uh, the overwhelming majority of gay people had. People who weren't out yet came out and came out fighting. And people who were already out refused to cede an inch of the ground that we had secured for ourselves. And it really was a war. And it was a war that we won. It's interesting. Jerry Falwell, uh, whom you mentioned earlier, and other key figures on the religious right, basically said this was punishment for the sin of being gay. Why do you think you were able to to win that battle in the public consciousness against all of these figures who, you know, had a lot more history and maybe credibility among millions of Americans than sort of unknown gay activists? Maybe because it was such a disgusting, despicable comment and observation, maybe that they had that going for yeah, them. Yeah, uh, we did have that going for us. We also had our secret weapon, which is that gay people are randomly distributed through the population, that we are born into straight families. And that was, we were embedded in the heart of straight America. Even though many of us had been rejected by our families when we came out and were exiled from them, we were still a part of them. And when people got sick, when people were uh, dying, uh, when lives are on the line, it really like pulled people up short. And some families failed their queer kids who were suffering, their gay relatives or something, but some families came around and eventually more and more of our families came around. I'm old enough to remember when uh, PFLAG, parents and friends of lesbians and gays, would come up the street at the Pride Parade 
uh, everybody lost their minds. You know, I'm going to cry talking about it even now. Uh, people standing, gay men of lesbians, standing on the side of the street watching the parade go by would see these people, uh, other gays and lesbians, marching up the street with their parents, their parents who loved them and will, were willing to love them publicly and march in the pride parade. And everybody would cry when PFLAG came down the street because almost no one had that kind of support from their parents, from their families. It was so rare. I bet that was incredibly moving. And, you know, I just spent the weekend. I was in the Pines in Fire Island. (laughs) So, as you can imagine, I was one of In preparation for this show. (laughs) No, no. I've never uh, been to the Pines. I need to get there in preparation for something. So, so my my husband's brother, Tom, is gay, and he's been with his partner, Andy, for 20-plus years. So, we always go to see them for a weekend in the summer at their beautiful home in Fire Island. And... I was just thinking as I was watching all these gay couples and how much things have changed, Dan. And I'm just, I I think in terms of social transformations, if you will, or progress, societal progress, I'm sure it doesn't feel that way for a lot of gay people. I remember my dad talking, who I think was slightly homophobic, uh, you know, talking about some gay person who worked in his office and kind of in hushed tones and, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in not flattering and not a flattering way. And my father was the most fair-minded person I know, but this was a blind spot for him. But I think culturally, it was so, people were so closeted. And then you go to Fire Island and you see everyone just out and about. And it's just, it's just amazing to me how much things have changed. Amazing you to me, too. you feel that way? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the PFLAG point, PFLAG would march down the street 30, 40 years ago, everyone would sob. Now PFLAG marches down the street at the Pride Parade. We're all happy to see PFLAG. But most of us at the parade, most of the people there have families that love and support them now. So it's not as impact, It's not as emotionally devastating to see people with parents who love them because you probably have parents who love you. Uh, now and there's there has been such a change. You know, I, I talk frequently about the the right wing myth and the left wing myth when it comes to progress. And the right wing myth is we can risk no progress if we give women the vote, society will collapse, family will fall apart. If we uh, you know pass the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, everything's going to end. If we let gay people serve openly in the military, the military is going to collapse. If we let gay people get married, uh, family is going to collapse. It's always you know it, do this, there will be a catastrophe. Though, and that's the right wing myth, and they're. Proven wrong again and again and again and again. Their their dire predictions never come to pass. The left-wing myth is there's been no progress, that we're as racist, as homophobic, as anti-Semitic, as transphobic, a, a culture as we have ever been. And that's demonstrably false. We are not free from racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia or anti-Semitism, but we've made tremendous progress. And on the left, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, propagate a myth that's in some ways as damaging as that right-wing myth that we can risk no progress because we want to be able to point to the progress we've made and be able to say, look, we've done this. We've taken all of these steps and it hasn't just, you know, the sky hasn't fallen and the country hasn't fallen and if anything, we've gotten better and stronger uh, and more just as a society for having uh, taken these steps. So the left should always be pointing to the progress that we've made to argue for more progress, to refute the right-wing myth that we can risk no progress. And what about the nature versus nurture argument? You know, it's funny because I thought it was pretty established that it was nature, that people are born gay. But then other people seem to come out and say, well, it is a choice. I think Cynthia Nixon not that long ago, didn't she create some controversy about that? And I'm curious. It was a choice. Yeah. And I'm just curious about your take on that. Well, it shouldn't matter. Uh, The people who say it's a choice are arguing that gay people, uh, queer people shouldn't have any civil rights, be allowed to marry, be allowed to adopt because they don't have to exist. Um, Well, Mormons don't have to exist. Faith is a choice. That's why there are street preachers and proselytizers and Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on my door this morning. Religion is a choice. It's also a protected class, as it should be. Um, And you're not allowed to discriminate against someone based on their chosen faith. So there's Mm -hmm. just this dishonesty at the heart of the way so many people of faith, it's usually religious people who make this choice argument about sexual orientation. They're saying that because this thing is a choice, you deserve no protections. Um, I experienced my homosexuality as not a choice at all. Uh, It shouldn't matter whether it was a choice or not, but it certainly for me felt born. And there is 
a body of sort of evidence. No, there's no one gay gene out there, but there are genetic factors at play. You know, the f- most famous thing is the twins studies that show that if an identical twin is gay, uh, the other twin is likelier to be gay, but not automatically gay. So that there are, right. it seems to be a multi-causal thing. But the way, you know, most gay people don't, you know, we dread being gay. When I was 13 years old and realizing that I was gay, it was a catastrophe. It wasn't a choice I made to destroy my life, to, you know, upend my relationship with my parents, to estrange myself from my siblings and the faith that I had been raised in, to live every day in terror of being caught or found out or scrutinized in such a way that I might be outed. And then to police my behavior and try to act straight, even had sex with girls. Like, I desperately wanted to be straight. I desperately wanted to be anything other than gay. That was not a choice I made to piss off my dad, (laughs) which is the argument that uh, a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about when they talk about homosexuality like to make. Can I say something about Jerry Falwell, who came up a couple of times? Sure. Um, my dad uh, was for Anita Bryant, was for Jerry Falwell, was kind of a conservative uh, guy. He said things that were anti-gay in front of me when I was 10 and 8 that I remembered, that just pierced me, like kind of knew then. And the argument that the Falwells and Bryants used to make was that uh, – Gay people were a threat to the family because we didn't get married, because we didn't have children, because we didn't settle down. We lived for the moment and for pleasure and the next orgasm. And that was why we were terrible. Well, that's the only way that we were allowed to live. We couldn't get married. We couldn't have children. And once gay people were freer, there were gay people who wanted to get married. There were gay people who wanted to have children and and did marry and did have children and do and continue to. Just as there are straight people who don't want to get married, don't want to have kids and don't. That there was nothing gay about the gay lifestyle that Falwell condemned and nothing straight about the straight lifestyle uh, in the end. There was nothing straight about it. And what we've seen now is kind of this great cross-pollinization where, you know, gay people live as, you know, the quote-unquote gay lifestyle until they settle down uh, and then live the straight lifestyle. And straight people kind of do the same. Like straight people borrowed a lot from gay culture and just renamed it. Uh, You know, we used to – can I use a swear word? Yeah. We used to talk about fuck buddies, and now straight people talk about friends with benefits. We used to talk about tricking, and then straight people called that hooking up. And there's so much in, like, young straight life and culture and young young adult straight people's sex lives that's just gay stuff renamed and reappropriated. So we stole marriage from you. You stole fuck buddies from us. (laughs) And I think we're even. Yeah, me too. I think we're definitely (laughs) even. That that said, Dan, you know, you are a major proponent of this concept called monogamish, which is a sort of a modified open marriage concept where mm-hmm. you, you don't believe that for a lot of people, lifelong monogamy is realistic. And so if both partners can consent, you believe that there, there can be extramarital relationships. Can you talk about that both in concept and also in practice in your own life? Well, I actually coined the term monogamish to describe my own uh, life with my husband. Um, We're not monogamous. When you're a gay couple, particularly gay couple who are parents, and you say you're not monogamous, people picture, uh, you know, a degree of promiscuity or recklessness that just isn't us. Um, And so, you know, we we were more monogamous than not. You know, we're mostly overwhelmingly having sex with each other and occasionally a very special guest star. So I started saying, you know, we're monogamish. Like the three of you or just like you go out off on your own? I'm getting a little nervous here. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm kidding out a little, I think he means both, Katie. I think he means both. The question I put to Stephen Colbert once that made him have to stop his show was, you know, he said, asked me if I cheated on my husband and I asked him if it was cheating, if I'm cheating at one end of a guy while my husband cheats at the other end of the same guy at the same time. Oh, my. Are you picturing wow. that, everybody okay. out there in podcast land? We'll see if that makes the edit. Yes, I, yeah, we got that. You're painting quite a picture. <laughs> but do you also, do you also, when you say you're monogamish, Dan, would you also have a sexual encounter with a, with a guy and that your husband doesn't know and uh, he's okay with that? Because I would not be jiggy with that, Dan, if my husband wanted to do that. Uh, what we do and what I think all people who are engaged in ethical non-monogamy is we do what we both agree is okay. You know, when I talk about monogamish, though, in the context of the column or the concept that I that I promulgated, like it's been embraced by a lot of people who are monogamous. But what they 
use monogamish to mean is, of course, we're still attracted to other people. You know, we're told a lie about monogamy and about long-term relationships and love and commitment when we're kids, which is, you know, one day you'll fall in love and you won't want to have sex with anybody else and you'll be monogamous. And the truth is, you grow up, you'll make a monogamous commitment, you'll still want to have sex with other people. But you're not going to because you've made a monogamous commitment and you should honor that commitment. Um, If two people are policing each other in a monogamous relationship for evidence of what both should just assume to be true, that's exhausting and it generates a lot of conflict. Like, oh, you looked at that person, you're attracted to your personal trainer, um, you checked out the baristas, but well, of course your wife's attracted to her personal trainer. No one in the whole long history of personal trainers has ever hired a personal trainer they didn't want to fuck. It's the, the, the question with monogamy is whether or not you— I don't want to do that with my personal trainer. Her okay. name's Larissa, and I, she just, I'm just not that into her. You're the exception that proves the rule. Um, <laughs> by and large, broadly speaking, generally. Um, so, of course, you're both attracted to other people. And if you're making a monogamous commitment, then you don't sleep with other people. But if why bust each other and, and give each other grief— for the fact that you will sometimes perceive your partner to be attracted to someone else. Of course they're going to be attracted to someone else. If you can diffuse that in a, in a monogamous relationship, that source of conflict, you're going to have a more stable monogamous relationship. And I deal with it by just giving my husband a lot of free passes, knowing that he's not going to use the free passes, but acknowledging that if I gave free passes out, those people would be a part of the free pass system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but your free presses are a little bit unrealistic. It's like, oh, yeah, John, if you could convince Gwyneth Paltrow to sleep with you, uh, go right ahead. <laughs> hey, I'm not going <laughs> to tell John you said that, Brian. <laughs> but here's I, I was just going to ask, Dan, you know, you, you and your husband adopted a son. I think a lot of people say that it's important to be monogamous for the sake of the kid and a stable family unit. Is your son aware of the fact that you're monogamish, not monogamous? And what effect, if any, do you think that would have on him? Well, he doesn't like to hear about his parents' sex life any more than anyone else (laughs) wants to hear about their parents' sex lives. Uh, You know, he's read some of the stuff that I've written, he knows, uh, and we have a generally acknowledged it without How old is he, by diving the way? into details. He's 19 years old. He's an adult. Uh. Uh, so I often say to people who ask this questions, if your parents were swingers, would you want them to tell you? No. Probably not. Because there's <laughs> two different kinds of uh, monogamy. There's social monogamy and sexual monogamy. And there are people who are socially monogamous, perceived to be monogamous, who are not actually monogamous. And I think Terry and I would be socially monogamous if I hadn't written what I'd written, if I hadn't told these truths that I felt like we should Tell to destigmatize and demystify uh, non-monogamous relationships. Um, so we don't go into it with great detail uh, with our kid, nor does he wish to discuss it with us in any great detail. Uh, nor would I want to talk with my parents about their sex life in any great detail. And if they were not monogamous, I probably wouldn't want to hear about that from them either. Uh, I remember when my parents used to lock their door, and I would be like, "Ew, gross!" Because yep. <laughs> I'd, you know, every once in a while, my dad would lock the door, and I'd be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> "We know, I what know what's that going means. on in there." <laughs> anyway, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Dan, we want to hear more about your podcast and some of the weird questions or interesting questions you get about Donald Trump and his so-called commitment to LGBTQ issues that he talked about on the campaign trail and your campaign with your husband, the It Gets Better campaign. So we're going to talk about all those things right after this. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person? and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and now back to our conversation with dan savage Let's talk about what Donald Trump has done vis-a-vis gay rights and, of course, the recent transgender ban, which caught so many people in the Pentagon by surprise. Um, Were you hopeful that he would be more supportive? And what has your reaction been to some of the moves that he has made? I wasn't hopeful. Um, uh, Donald Trump crawled into bed with uh, Mike Pence. That was his first big act uh, as the nominee was picking Mike Pence, who is one of the most rapidly anti-gay uh, Republican politicians in the country. Mike Pence, who redirected funds from HIV prevention education to ex-gay therapies, including shock treatments. Uh, rather than educating you so you don't contract HIV, we're going to electrocute the gay out of you. That's Mike Pence's uh, platform on gay rights. And Trump picked Pence to be his running mate. Uh, Trump allowed um, Tony, what's his face from Family Research Council? Perkins. Uh, Perkins. Uh, from the SPLC certified anti-gay hate group Family Research Council to basically write the Republican platform again. Um, You know, Trump touched a pride flag at a rally and a bunch of uh, right-wing gay people, the handful that exists out there, pointed to that as evidence that he would be the most pro-gay president ever and then appoints Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, who's already uh, uh, issued anti-gay rulings uh, when he was involved in lower courts. And now the trans ban, which... Is, looks like it's going to go into force. And when you have the Justice Department reversing an Obama-era interpretation of an anti-gender discrimination statute to, as covering sexual orientation, and the DOJ now weighing in and saying, oh, no, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, and inserting itself into a lawsuit that it did not need to insert itself into, into a litigation it wasn't involved in, like aggressively going after gay rights. So, yeah, I didn't look at Trump and think, oh, this is going to be a a sunny new era of uh, Republican pro-gay anything. It was more of the same. Having said that, though, he did tweet out in 2016, thank you to the LGBT community. I will fight for you while Hillary brings in more people who that will, he should have said, who will threaten your freedoms and beliefs. And even at the RNC, he said, as your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBT citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Yeah, the, the key word there is foreign ideology. We're not going to get thrown off towers by ISIS in the United States while Donald Trump is president, but he is not going to protect us from a domestic hateful ideology. He's going to empower domestic haters of LGBT people as he has. Yeah, he was trying to make the political argument that he's tougher on ISIS or he was tougher on ISIS than Hillary and therefore gay people should vote for him. And, you know, I don't think that was a very successful political pitch, right. but it came across as hypocrisy as he made this decision to ban trans people from the military without even consulting the the generals who would have to oversee and implement that policy. The scariest thing about that announcement he made on Twitter about banning uh, trans people from the military without consulting his generals uh, was that that was three tweets. And the first tweet ended without the announcement about what the hell he was talking about. And there were nine minutes between that first tweet and the second tweet where the Pentagon thought that the Trump might be announcing an attack on North Korea. And you know the North Koreans are monitoring Trump's Twitter feed, so they might have thought the same thing. We have a dangerous lunatic in the office of the president right now imperiling us all, not just queer people. How many trans people are actually in the military? I've seen the numbers really vary wildly. They do. Not all people who are trans are out, so we're going to have perhaps witch hunts 
like they used to do for closeted people in the military, for closeted gays and lesbians and bi folks in the military. Uh, but there are reportedly thousands, although uh, like you, the numbers I've seen vary widely, but reportedly thousands of trans people already serving in the military without incident, without it being a problem. The Pentagon supports allowing trans people to serve openly and continuing to serve openly in the military. So you, you started a project called ITMFA. Uh, do you want to say what that stands for? <laughs> it stands for, well, first we have to know that uh, in my advice column, I frequently use the acronym DTMFA because so many people write in and the advice they need is to dump the motherfucker already. They're like in a terrible relationship and they're asking for help and the only help they need is the push to dump. And so sometimes I, <laughs> I use that shorthand to save space in my column, DTMFA. And you're trying to give the nation similar advice. Exactly. It stands for impeach the motherfucker already. And we've sold thousands and thousands of T-shirts, mugs, uh, very tasteful lapel pins that you can wear on a tasteful suit if you're going on cable news programs to talk about the president, uh, and other merch, and donated a whole bunch of money to Planned Parenthood, the International Refugee Assistance Project, and the ACLU. All proceeds go to those three organizations. And you've raised over $100,000, is that right? Yeah, well, we sold a lot more than $100,000. That's what we were able to donate after buying the merch, shipping the merch, paying the taxes, $100,000 to those organizations. We're getting ready to make another big donation to those organizations based on sales since that donation. Um, and what's fun about ITMFA is, as you know, you wear the T-shirt ITMFA, and people look at you, or the red hat that has ITMFA on it instead of "Make America Great Again," and people say, "What does ITMFA stand for?" And then you get to tell them. <laughs> and th- at that moment, it's like a, it's like the Sorting Hat in Harry Potter. You're going to know whether you're talking to a good person or a bad person, in my opinion, because they'll either laugh and think that's hilarious and want the T-shirt themselves, or they'll huff off and on. It's a, interesting you just said that because there are a lot of people, a few million in fact, who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Are, are you saying that they're all bad people, that the 62 million people who voted for Donald Trump are all bad people? Or is there some shift that needs to happen in the society where the Democrats or commentators like you need to make a stronger case to those people about why and how Donald Trump is bad for them? Yes, I agree that they're not all in the basket of deplorables. I think there definitely are some who are in the basket of deplorables. That statement Hillary made that was just so problematic for her and such a burden for her is really kind of true. You know, in politics, you you can't win over everyone. You have to work at the margins. And there are people whose support for Trump was marginal and conditional. And you've seen his poll numbers dropping. You've seen a lot of people, even in the base, the GOP base and his base, regret their support for him including one of his highest-profile queer supporters, who's uh, Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley investor billionaire, uh, now thinks that the Trump administration is incompetent and a disaster, thinks now what we all could see coming plainly before he was elected. Uh, So, yeah, you want to work on reaching those folks. And, you know, the, the message I think the Democrats need to send is that the Republicans are lying to you about cause and effect. They're pointing to the fact that People of color, it's not legal to discriminate against them anymore, uh, that, you know, women are, are empowered in the workforce and gender discrimination is wrong, that, like, there's all these openly gay people around and, you know, there's more people of color, there's more Mexicans, there's more immigrants. And they say, look at these things. This is why you don't have a living wage job. And actually, those things, you know, there's correlation perhaps there, but there's not causation. You don't have a living wage job because— We've destroyed the union movement because we've shredded the social safety net, because we don't invest in schools and communities and transportation and housing the way we once did. That's that's why it's tougher for you. That's why college is prohibitively expensive for your kids now. It's not because gay people are open. That didn't cause that to happen. It's not because there are more Mexicans now than there were 30, 40 years ago. What's the problem now is that there's not a union. The problem now is that we've shredded that social safety net, that we've done away with living wage jobs, but that we don't, uh, that the rich don't pay their fair share and then we invest that money into programs that benefit anyone. That's the cause of your misery, not these, those people, whether you're talking about people of color or queer people or trans people or whoever the scapegoat of the moment is that they're pointing to. You know, I have to point out, though, I thought it was interesting, Dan, that you launched this ITMFA campaign during George W. Bush's presidency, <laughs> I did, and uh, which he, and he, President Bush must seem like Nelson Mandela at this point in time to you. You know, in retrospect, you know, Bush 
launched, you know, a disastrous war and tanked the economy. Uh, we got out of the Bush era alive. Uh, most of us, not all of us. Well, and he also got reelected in part on an attack on gay people and gay marriage in particular. That's that's true. So now we can look back on the Bush era thinking, well, it didn't kill us. Right now in the middle of the, you know, in the, out the beginning of the Trump, hopefully not era, hopefully the Trump 24 months, uh, he might get us all killed. <laughs> and it's a little, you know, you want to like return to the president who you know in retrospect didn't get us all killed, but might have at the time gotten us all killed. How realistic do you think it is that Donald Trump will be impeached if Donald Trump were Hillary Clinton, he would have been impeached 23 times already. Uh, if Chelsea Clinton was filling in for Hillary uh, in an official capacity in any way, there would be no end of screaming and yelling, complaining. Um, the corruption, the hypocrisy, the double standards uh, are, are appalling. So, you know, realistically, he's probably not going to get impeached so long as Paul Ryan is sitting there uh, and is Speaker of the House. Um, I'm hopeful that the Dems can take uh, at least the House and hopefully the House and the Senate uh, in 2018. But if the Democrats do take the House in 2018, do you really want Donald Trump to be impeached, given what you just said about Mike Pence? People ask that question a lot. Like, oh my God, but if we impeach him, then it's Pence. And my feeling is, as awful as I think Pence is, Pence oscillates in a predictable band of Republican awfulness, whereas Trump, you don't know what's going to happen next. And it's a bit of an existential terror living with that man in the Oval Office. You're highly critical, obviously, of Republicans, but you also get annoyed by liberal Democrats. What do you think they get wrong? And why are they, why do they seem to be uh, struggling, you know, and having a bit of an identity crisis? Well, Democrats are just so bad at messaging. You know, the word goes down from some, you know, the Republican death star that we're going to call these uh, partial birth abortions, or we're going to call them death taxes, and we're going to talk about a death panel. And or fake news. And, and then every Republican marches in lockstep. Every Republican unites behind whatever the, the message is until even liberals can't think of uh, that ab abortion procedure without thinking partial birth abortion or can't think of estate taxes without thinking death taxes. And Democrats can't seem to uh, make that same sort of effort. Democrats can't seem to unite. For instance, and this isn't my idea, this was suggested years ago by a Republican operative who walked away from the right-wing movement because he was so disgusted by what he'd witnessed. And his name escapes me because marijuana is legal here where I live. <laughs> and he, he said, why are you calling them entitlements? We don't like people who are entitled. No one's entitled to anything, right? That's the American myth. Uh, you have to make it happen for yourself. What they are is, and what you should be calling them are, earned benefits. Social Security, Medicare, earned benefits. You paid in, you earned this, not you're entitled to it. And this has been floating around now for like a dozen years, this advice. And yet every time you see a Democrat on television talking about Social Security, it's entitlement, 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 entitlement. Even though that's, it's right-wing rhetoric to call it an entitlement. It, it undermines Social Security every time a Democrat lets the word entitlement fall out of their mouths. And you see it on, I think, single-payer is not a term that Democrats should embrace. And Democrats are just terrible messaging. So what, what should it be? Universal health care. Everyone is pro-universe. Everyone's pro-health care. When you hear single-payer and what the, what the R's will do and already are doing is they'll say to an individual voter, you know who they mean when they say single-payer? They mean you. You're going to be paying for their health care, for those people. So they really need sort of new branding, don't they? They need to hire a consultant to come up with better terminology. I think he's talking about kind yeah. of like a, a Frank Luntz for the left. Frank was a guest on this show, and he's, of course, famous for coming up with words and catchphrases the Republicans can use to defend and promote their ideas. And the Dems desperately need one. And I, I think there's an example in gay marriage when it comes to messaging. Um, you know, even advocates of, of same-sex marriage, advocates of marriage equality like me and uh, other folks who, who, you know, pushed the movement, Mary Bonotto and uh, Evan Wolfson and Andrew Sullivan, a lot, everyone was using gay marriage, gay marriage. And then there was this shift on a dime one day where everyone started using marriage equality because gay marriage put gay first. Gay for a lot of straight people who are the people we're trying to convince uh, is a negative. It conjures up negative mental images of, frankly, of gay sex. Gay marriage. It's like gay sex marriage. This is buttfucker marriage. And that made people uncomfortable because not everyone is for gay or That's... okay with gay sex. And then marriage equality. Everyone's for marriage. Everyone's for equality. 
universal health care, not single payer, because everyone's for the universe and everyone's for health care. That's so interesting, isn't it? How much that changed the perception and ergo the progression of of gay marriage exactly. or marriage equality, right? And that happened on a dime where everyone started using marriage equality. Why 12 years after uh, this, I think, kind of seminal op-ed was written about stop calling them entitlements, call them earned benefits, are Democrats still going on CNN and, and MSNBC, sometimes even Fox, and saying and, and having the word entitlement come out of their mouths? They, it's political malpractice at this point. Speaking of Fox, does your dad still watch Fox News? Only 24 hours a day. <laughs> so he's limited himself. <laughs> that must be a fun dinner table conversation. I mean, um, because you do. It's it's amazing to me. You watch the different networks, and it's like a parallel universe. It is – you get a completely different perspective given who you're watching right now. Do you have a hard time even discussing things with him? Yeah, we don't talk about politics. We can't. We, we, we don't have the same – language. We don't live in the same universe. And, you know, my dad, like I think a lot of people, exists in kind of a hermetically sealed right-wing universe, although he claims he's an independent, and yet he only votes for Republicans and uh, accepts as fact a lot of the crap that is shoveled out uh, out of the television screen every day by Fox News and Hannity and all the lying liars over there. How can we ever come together if people are getting their worldview from two such disparate places? I mean, I think we're probably overblowing the number of people who watch cable news, mm-hmm. which is not that many. You know, I think sometimes if you watch it, you feel like everybody is. But it seems to me that it's it's only, uh, I think, exacerbating this divide in the country. It is. and But, but we're never going to bring everybody together. There was never a moment where we were, were all together Um and there never will be. You know, what you want to do is assemble a majority. And sometimes that means looking at the people you can't persuade and not not trying to persuade the unpersuadables, not not expending that effort. Uh, and to not waste effort on those who cannot be persuaded, you have to first be able to identify accurately those people who cannot be persuaded and identify accurately those people who can be moved. And maybe the people you cited earlier who voted for Obama uh, eight years ago or four years ago and voted for Trump this year, that those are the people that Dems should be really digging into and figuring out how to speak to and, and how to uh, – what language and, and what sort of words and phrases uh, that best encapsulate and communicate democratic policies, which are better for those people, uh, will work and, and to bring them around. But the the hardcore – Donald Trump can do no wrong, dear leader. Dan, you were introduced to many Americans through the It Gets Better project, which you started in 2010 with your husband. And the idea was to have adults submit videos assuring gay teenagers that they can go on to, you know, have good lives even after being bullied as teens or, or feeling bad about themselves for being gay. How did, how did this idea come about? Well, there was this kid in Indiana named Billy Lucas who killed himself uh, and he got, it's a, it's a horrible story, but you know, he was very brutally bullied all through middle school and high school, never came out to anybody, may not have been gay, but was perceived to be gay. And after he died, a Facebook memorial page was created for him by his family where the same kids who'd been bullying him, uh, in school, uh, went, they went to that page to say they were glad he was dead and to call him faggot one last time in front of his grieving parents. And oh, I wrote gosh. about that and I was just so furious uh, as were all the commenters, except one who wrote a comment on my blog uh, on the thing I wrote about Billy's death and that Facebook page, where she said, uh, I wished I'd known you, Billy, and been able to tell you, it makes me cry, uh, been able to tell you that things get better, rest in peace. And that really leapt out at me because things do get better, often on the personal level, on the macro level for the queer community, things have gotten much better. And we need to be able to to share that with kids. And I just was thinking about things get better. And, you know, particularly the kids who have parents who would never allow them to talk to a queer adult or go to an LGBT youth support group or join the GSA in their school. Those kids need to hear from queer adults about how it gets better um, and how to make it better for themselves, what we did to make it better for ourselves. And we wouldn't get permission to talk to those kids, right? And it just occurred to me that, oh, there's the internet, there's YouTube, there's Twitter and Facebook. We don't need permission to talk to those kids anymore, that there are queer kids out there 
who can't get to a queer youth support group, but we can bring the queer youth support group and the adult perspective to them using these new tools. Because when you think about, you know, people have said to me, you know, it's not just gay kids who are bullied. Like, absolutely true. The kid who's bullied at school because of his race or her faith or his class goes home to parents of the same race, faith, class that they can open up to and expect support. A kid who's queer or gender nonconforming uh, or gay goes home to parents who aren't queer and sometimes disastrously are the worst bullies in their lives, are bullying them too. And they have no one to turn to. You know, a, a kid of, a kid who's, uh, you know, an African-American kid goes home to his parents. He can talk about what he's encountered, what he's seen. The parents will share with their kid uh, how they navigate living in a society with, that were plagued by systemic racism, how, you know, how they survive. And the kid who's gay goes home to parents who can't impart that, who can't share that. Even if the kid's openly gay and the parents are supportive, they don't know how to illuminate that path. And what the It Gets Better campaign did was it allowed uh, LGBT adults to share what they learned uh, navigating that, often all by themselves, um, with queer kids who are just starting out, who are just figuring out who they are. And also straight people who are were supportive of or are supportive of the community, they participated as well. You had people like Stephen Colbert, for example, and Janet Jackson and all sorts of people. Barack Obama. Barack Obama, exactly, and Joe Biden. They all contributed videos to this effort, which was really, I, I imagine, also very important. It was important. You know, for my money— uh, I think the most important videos are the videos by LGBT folks that no one's ever heard of, not celebrities, not famous. There was one by a lesbian dairy farmer in Vermont talking about even living in this rural community, how it got better for her and how she's loved and accepted by her family and uh, and her community. And that's really important. What was great about the videos from straight folks, uh, you know, Ezra Klein um, from Vox made a really wonderful It Gets Better video, was an important message for a lot of young people queer kids who are being bullied by their families and by every straight person that they know is the message that there are straight people out there in the world who will love and accept you for who you are. You may not know any of them right now, but they're out there. You know, I hate to end things on a pessimistic note, but I can't help but wonder, which makes me sound very much like Carrie Bradshaw, but with all the things that are going on in the country and some of the things that the Trump administration has done so far. Are you concerned about the strides that have been made and about going backwards and about some of the members of these communities who are going to really suffer as a result? I am. I'm very concerned. But, you know, circling back to when we were talking about HIV AIDS, things were dark and things looked really dire. And there was, you know, we'd made progress, but then that was halted and in some places reversed. Uh, and then we got into the fight. And that fight and having to defend what we'd already uh, secured, um, that fight made it better in the end. That fight wound up uh, creating uh, more progress and more forward momentum. So right now, there's a fight on and people have to jump in and, and get engaged. But that's how it gets better because you got out there and fought. That's how the, you know, ACT UP generation made it better for the, the generations of queer people that have come after by engaging in, in the fight, by defending ourselves and fighting for what we know to be right. So this has galvanized the community in a way? Exactly. You know, the we talked about the trans ban and it's being used politically by this Republican administration. George Bush— like Brian said, George Bush, 2004, helped get reelected by running anti-gay marriage initiatives in 11 states that passed in each and every state. And a decade later, we have marriage equality, in part not despite those campaigns, but because of them, because the anti-marriage campaign forces to have an ongoing conversation about marriage rights and about gay relationships and straight relationships and about love. And even though we lost those sort of snapshots in time in 2004, we were winning the argument. The more we had the fight, the more we had the argument, the more the needle moved in the direction of justice and fairness toward us. 
And we're having that fight now about trans rights. You know, they're weaponizing anti-trans bigotry at this moment. They may win at this moment, but the conversation they're starting and the fight that we are now in is going to move the needle in the direction of progress and justice, ultimately and in the end. Well, Dan Savage, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about so many different things. We really appreciate your coming on the podcast. And, you know, I, I look forward to talking to you in the future. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to our podcast team, our indefatigable podcast team, our producer, Gianna Palmer, our production assistant, Nora Ritchie, our audio engineer, Ryan Connor in L.A., and Jared O'Connell, who mixes the show. Hi, Jared. He's just waving at me now. Plus, Allison Bresnik on keys. Just kidding. Allison Bresnik on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, everything social, and Emily Bina on snares. I mean, who keeps things moving at Katie Couric Media. Mark Phillips, by the way, thank you for writing our terrific theme music. I still think it's extremely catchy. I give it a 95 for dancing. (laughs) Katie and I are the executive producers of this show. And as we keep reminding you, you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. We really love hearing from our listeners, good, bad, and ugly. Well, maybe not ugly, but you know, constructive criticism, nice feedback, all of it. We appreciate it. And uh, we really do make this show for you, not for the money. So thank (laughs) you. That's for damn sure. If you can't get enough of us, I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, katie.couric on Snapchat. You can find me on Facebook as well. Brian, meanwhile, is at Twitter at Goldsmith B. So here's the part where we appeal to the better angels of your nature, just like Abraham Lincoln. Won't you please rate and review (laughs) us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe as well. Your support helps make this show possible. So thank you very, very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This is Julie Rieger author of The Ghost Photographer and co-host of Insider's Guide to the Other Side. And I'm Brenda Beam. I may not have written a book, but I'm in Julie's book. And you are the most gifted psychic on the planet. (laughs) Come on. Listen to Insider's Guide to the Other Side on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.